0: As I said earlier, I trust uh, you guys are in uh, for a treat, uh, for a blessing uh, that God has uh, given us and given uh, at least our Compass Churches uh, and here in 2022, such a great expositor of God's Word and Dr. Mike Fabares. If you guys do not know him... uh, Spend some time getting to know him, and you can do that uh, here after service, or uh, you can find him on Focal Point Ministries, where he is uh, on hundreds and hundreds of radio stations across the country. Uh, And you can also get to know some of his wisdom through uh, two really uh, informative books. Uh, One, Raising Men, Not Boys, which is a fantastic uh, resource for you if you're raising uh, young men in the cultural climate that we find ourselves in. Uh, And a second one I would recommend to you uh, is 10 mistakes people make about heaven, hell, In the afterlife. It'd be two great resources for you uh, that Pastor Mike has written, and I would encourage you to write those. But uh, Pastor Mike in my life has been a great mentor, and uh, he has been a great leader in my life that not only has afforded me an opportunity to lead a church plant that he had sent so graciously uh, from Aliso Viejo to here, but he has been a great example of me uh, as as a father, as, uh, as a pastor and in so many areas. And his wife, Carlin's also been a great mentor to my wife, Kayla. Uh, so many great things to say about them. He's a wonderful pastor uh, and a better man of God. And so with that, I would like to introduce to you guys Dr. Mike Fabares.
1: Well, I do send you greetings from the land of fruits and nuts the left coast. Um, There are a few Christians left. Many of you came here, so we're at a net loss, but we're doing our best to correct that problem. Um, We are proud of you, and if you don't know how many people in Aliso Viejo are praying for you, if you're a native here of this area and um, are new to this church, just know there are many people that have prayed for you. And I prayed for the multiplication of people just like you who love Christ, who love his word, and are willing to see this area reached with the gospel. Unashamedly, unabashed, uh, committed to what God says because we know he's made us and we're all going to answer to him. And that's as sure, just as sure as you're sitting here, as sure as I'm standing here. You're going to stand before your maker and we better know his will for our lives. And in a sense, that's an easy thing, isn't it? I mean, a simple thing, just they do what God says. Uh, and, and another way, it's very complex. There are a lot of things like that that are simple, uh, but they're not easy. Uh, I often think of that when I think of my kids who like to play golf. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a simple thing. Just take this white ball and hit it into that hole down there 350 yards away. Uh, but if you've tried it, it's, uh, it's not that easy. <laughs> uh, it's like bringing home the kid from the... Uh, hospital and, I mean, just take care of him for the next 18 years. Uh, it's a simple thing, but it's not easy. Uh, if I were to tell you even, uh, just go to my house, just drive to my house, which is 1,360 miles away. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a simple thing. I mean, you'd know exactly what I meant by that. It just would, it would take some doing, and you would uh, have to figure out the directions and where I live, and you'd, you'd have a lot of work to do to kind of figure out how to get there. Uh, and the Christian life is that way right? It was that way even as Pastor Hayden and I and a team of others said, let's plant a church in New Braunfels in the hill country of Texas. It was a very simple thing on paper, but very difficult and very complicated. And when it came down to it, there was a lot of work and it wasn't easy. And so we recognize the Christian life really at its core is very simple. And Pastor Evan just read to you a passage that reminds us of that. Here is a, a requirement that we have as followers of Christ to actually follow Christ. It's like Peter, James, and John, they were told to, uh, to follow Christ, right? leave your nets and follow me. It's A very simple command, but it became a very challenging and not a very easy thing. It actually led to their martyrdom, right? All but John, he died as an exile on the island of Patmos, and it was uh, costly for all of them. Uh, Abraham. That's the passage we read in Hebrews chapter 11. I'd like you to get your eyes on that text beginning in verse 8. It's a very simple statement, right? Uh, hey, Abraham, leave where you're at and and come and do what I tell you. You won't know exactly where you're going, but you've got to follow me. We as Christians are people who have said that we trust in Christ, right? We are followers of Christ because He has sent His Son God has to die for us. He is to absorb the penalty of our sins so that I can, as a sinful man before my creator, be counted as righteous. And I am saying, okay, I trust you to save me from the penalty of my sins. And because you're the king and you're my redeemer, I'm gonna do what you say. And he says, following. And uh, of course, that's why it comes down to what does he say, right? What is he telling us to do? In this case, in verse eight, it says, by faith, Abraham obeyed. Uh, that's because he was called to go to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance, and so he went out not knowing where he was going. Um, it's going to take some, some faith, right? If Abraham is going to do what God told him to do, especially when he doesn't know where he's going. It reminds me of the old days. You old people remember when we used to write checks. Remember that? Uh, you had to fill in how much it was. You had to fill in, pay to the order of, and then you had to sign it down there at the bottom. And if I said to you... Um, you know, I, 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 maybe I, I mowed your grass, I don't know. <laughs> Did you do that out here? You, you ride around on tractors to mow your grass. At least that's our view of it from the left coast. Uh, and if I say, well, I'll do all that for you, and then I say, time for you to pay me, and uh, you get out your old antiquated checkbook, and uh, you say, well, how much? And I say, well, don't worry about that. You just sign it and give it to me, and just, just let me fill that part in. Uh, it would require a great deal of trust, right? Would it not for you to say, well, I, I have to trust that you are not going to rip me off? I mean, imagine how much trust it took. And that's what the word faith really means, that Abraham trusted. And that's why he was willing to do what God asked him to do. He signed this blank check and said, I'll, I'll follow you. I mean, really, this church was planted here in the hill country of Texas because we wanted to... Um, not only see people reached with the gospel, but hopefully many of you are here today saying, I trust in Jesus Christ. We want to be able to say, well, here's what God says when it comes to following Him, right? Here's what it means to follow Christ. Uh, and the only way we can do that is by opening up the book, the only book God ever wrote, and say, what does He say? And, and that's why the teachers, the preachers in this church have given themselves to very carefully, line by line, verse by verse, Teach you the principles of God's word. I know you can open it and read it for yourself, but these guys are given to the study of the text. And the Bible says in, in James chapter 3 that not many people should aspire to be teachers, right? Let not many of you become teachers, lest you incur a stricter judgment. And that's the reality. They know with great trepidation that what they stand up here and say about what it means to follow Christ uh, is a, a, a set of reiterations of God's truth that they're going to be judged for. Right? They've got to do this accurately. And so they're very careful about saying what it means to follow Christ. And they're not going to get outside the boundaries of God's Word. That's their commitment. You should be careful learners. Right? You should be Bereans, to use that word there in the book of Acts, that you should study to make sure that your pastors are telling you the right thing. But if they tell you something from God's Word, this is what it means to follow Christ in the 21st century, right, here in Texas. Well, then that's what you ought to do. Right? You ought to do that because that's what Christ told us to do. And that's the responsibility we have as Christians. And it's the difference really between in our lives having the favor of God and, and then having perhaps the opposition of God as we'll see in our text. We need to make sure that we are faithfully following Christ. It doesn't earn our salvation, you know that. We believe in grace, that Christ does all that we need to be right before God. But when it comes to God saying, now follow me, right, I need to make sure that I'm saying I am a follower of Christ because I'm doing what He says. And that is something that we carefully understand from God's Word is an obligation for all of us. Matter of fact, that's the word used in the book of Romans, that we are obliged, right? We have an obligation to follow what God has told us, what the Spirit has told us. And that's not sitting around, you know, kind of pondering life on a, on a, on a rock somewhere or, you know, whatever it might be, a navel, nasal, navel, nasal, nasal. <laughs> there used to be an old phrase about pondering your navel. I don't know. That, I don't no one does that anymore. But it's, it's about as good as pondering your nasal. Uh, <laughs> that doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what you feel. doesn't matter what you think. A lot of people say, well, I just, you know, sit around and just let the Spirit speak to me. Well, the Spirit's going to speak to you, and He's going to speak to you clearly by the book that He wrote. It's filled with principles. It is a lamp to your feet and a light to your path. The question is, am I going to respond with these first four words of verse 8? By faith, like Abraham, am I going to obey? Am I going to do it? And it'd be great if, like with writing a check, I know exactly what God wants me to do, and all implications of what he's asking me to do, but God doesn't work that way. And the father of faith, as we call him, Abraham, who sets a template and a paradigm of faith for us, he obeys even though he didn't know all the details, right? He's 900 miles from where God is going to take him in what was now modern Iraq in the bottom of the Mesopotamian Valley there between the Tigris and Euphrates River. And he was called up from Ur of the Chaldeans, and he's called up this 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 fertile crescent of, of land all the way across the desert and down into the land of Canaan. And uh, he didn't know where he was going to stay. He didn't know how he was going to make a living. He didn't know how this was all going to work out. But he knew God was asking him to do that. And what we need to do as we think about the future of what I hope is hundreds if not thousands of sermons that you hear from this platform from your pastors is that you're making a decision today at the outset before you hear any more sermons to say, if that's what God says, I'm committed to doing it. And if you're not at that place, then I'm thinking, well, what does it mean to be a Christian, right? Jesus once asked the question in Luke chapter 6, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? Right? I mean, the fundamental commitment of the follower of Christ is that we actually, actually follow Christ. And so when we hear what he says, we need to say, well, we're, we're going to do that. And we're going to hear it as God's Word is opened up to us from week to week and month to month and year to year. And we're going to say, we're going to do it. I could make you very uncomfortable right now by just by pulling out a few things from God's Word if I knew you personally. And I could see maybe there's an aspect of your Christian life that you're neglecting, something that clearly God has said that you're not doing. And I could open up the Bible and say, here, here's what the Bible says that you should do to follow Christ. And if you're not doing it, you'd get really uncomfortable, you'd start to squirm, you might make excuses, or you might rationalize why you're not doing it, but the bottom line is, the Christian life is a Christian looking at Christ and saying, I'll do what he says. If I were to bring Christ out from behind the curtain here, walk him up the stairs and stand him here next to me, and he were to point to you sitting back there, right, four rows from the back, three rows, three chairs in, and he says, you, you're supposed to sell your house today, and I'll tell you tomorrow what you're supposed to do next. Right? Uh, We can't respond to Christ by saying, well, I'll pray about it. I'll think about it. I'll ask my mentors, you know. If Christ himself with the scars on his hands and his feet were here and it was no doubt and you pinched yourself and you weren't, you weren't, you know, you weren't dreaming and you didn't smoke pot this morning or whatever, you're not hallucinating. You'd go like, well, okay, if that's Christ and I know it's Christ, right, it's not Pastor Evan dressed up in a robe or something, then I'm going to do it because it's Jesus and Jesus said it. And, and all I'm saying is that for Abraham to say, I will do what you ask me to do, takes a great deal of faith, and that really is the foundational virtue of the Christian life. I'm going to trust God enough to do what he says. And frankly, I don't think there's anybody in your life, matter of fact, I hope there's no one in your life, that you have that kind of explicit trust in. And even my wife says, come on, we're going to get in the car, let's just go. We'll go I mean, I trust my wife, right, <laughs> more than anyone, but I would, I would want to know, well, where are we going? And how long are we going to be gone? And what's it going to cost? I mean, I'd ask a lot of questions, right? But if Christ came out and said, uh, you know, Mike, you're going to do this. I'm just like, okay. It ought to be a yes, sir relationship. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. There's only one lawgiver and judge. I will stand before Christ one day. The Bible is very clear. 2 Corinthians 5, right? Romans chapter 14. So many passages that remind me, I'm going to stand before Christ and I'm going to give an account for what Christ told me to do. Now, I can do this through the Christian life and try and pretend that he's not speaking clearly. But you're going to hear his voice through his word being preached here in this room. You're going to hear it when you open up your Bible in your quiet time. You're going to hear it in your small groups as you study the Bible. And if it's a clear teaching of God's word, whether it involves your finances, whether it involves your career, whether it involves your friendships, your relationships, whatever it might cost you. In this case, it cost Abraham everything. He was going to leave and go to a place he didn't know. Now, it was a great promise. You're going to receive the place I take you to as a great inheritance. But it says in the bottom of verse 8, he went out not knowing where he was going. God knew where he was going, and God knows where you're going. If I were to ask you, where are you going to be in five years? Right? What are you going to be doing eight years from now? What kinds of things are you going to be investing in? Where are you going to live? What are you going to do? What's your family going to look like? I hope you have some plans, and you should. Christians should plan. They should be good planners. Proverbs talks about kind of mapping out our way and preparing and all that. That's all great, right? But we ultimately have to hold all of our plans lightly because at any point, I might be listening to a sermon. I might be reading the Bible. I might be in a small group contemplating the implications of a principle of God's Word and realize where I'm going is not the right place to go, right? Where I'm working, not the right place to work. Where I live is not the right place to live, the, the relationships I have, not the right relationships to have, right? The things that I know Bible, the Bible says I should do, I'm not doing, and I need to start doing it, and that might cost me in some way. And we need to say, we're going to do it. That, that's really what this really is all about, the Christian life, right? Saying, I trust in Christ. Now, Christ is my King. I'm going to respond to Him in faith by saying, I'll do what He says. I have a way of kind of summing that up in three compound words, I put it this way, anything, place, any time. And that's the thing we ought to say to Christ. Anything you want me to do, any place you want me to do it, and any time you want me to do it. If you're taking notes, that would be a good thing for us to say, because clearly that's what's being modeled in Abraham, right? He said to God, anything you want me to do, any place you want me to do it, and any time you want me to do it. He leaves when God says. He goes where God and he's going to end up doing what God tells him to do. And he does it because he trusts God. Anything, right, that, that's kind of the what of my life, right? Any place, that's the where of my life. And, and any time, that's the when of my life. And, and the what and the where and the when all needs to be something I've slid over to God and I said, okay, I'll do whatever it is that I'm doing right now. But I'm going to wait to hear as I study your word And I carefully think through what it says, and as I get good wise counsel and good expositional preaching, I'm going to make decisions based on your word. It's a lamp to my feet, a light to my path, and I'm going to make decisions based on what it says. And I might have plans about parlaying some kind of equity in my house to buy a bigger place and buy this or that, but then you open the Bible and you see that all Christians should be sacrificially giving to ministry. And you go, well, I'm not doing that. Well, if I do that, well, then I can't do this, and I can't parlay that equity into this kind of purchase, and I might have to kind of trim back on on how I live. Oh, well, right? The reality is that changed my plans just by obeying that one sermon, that one passage. It may be that I've got this path in my career, and I go from this level to that level and get this promotion and go there. And then you open up your Bible, and you say, oh, I'm supposed to be salt and light. I'm supposed to be restraining evil in my workplace. I'm supposed to be a spokesperson, an ambassador of Christ. I'm supposed to speak up about my Christianity, and that might cost me being the employee of the month or the next prospect for middle management or upper management. You might not get that promotion. And what you plan and what you want may not happen because you're saying, I know that I'm supposed to obey what God says. If he says I'm supposed to evangelize, I'm going to evangelize him. If he says I'm supposed to fellowship more and i got to have another night out of the week because I'm involving myself in ministry because the Bible says in 1 Peter 5, I'm supposed to be a good steward of what God has interested and I've got gifts that God's put in my life and I need to exercise those. And I'm thinking, well, I really didn't want church to suck up four nights of my week or three nights of my week or all weekend. And you say, well, I guess that's going to affect what I had planned. I need to be able to say, God, whatever you want, anything, and wherever you want it, and if I don't live and die in this, in this valley or this, this place, is it a valley, it's a hill, a set of hills? I don't know. What are we living in here? There, there, are there mountains around here? There's not, right? Hills. You live in the hills. You're the hill people. I didn't say hillbillies. I don't even know what that word means. But the hill people. You're going to die in them, their hills. Even if that's what you think you're going to do. Right? If God calls you to somebody, you might even be called to California. Can you imagine that? Or Manhattan. Right? Or Chicago. Right? Or God forbid, maybe somewhere down in Florida you might be called. With all the bugs and alligators. Or to another country. Right? Or to a new career. Or to go back to school. Or to train for something else. By faith, Abraham obeyed. I'm just saying, you're just going to say ahead of time, I'm going to obey. And even if it changes where I want to live or what I want to do or when I want to map out my life to do this, this, and this, I'm going to trust God for the sequence. I'm going to trust God for the subject. And I'm going to trust God for everything else that comes with that. The what, the where, and the when. Anything, any anyplace, anytime. Have you said that to Christ lately? Well, let me see what it is he wants me to do first. That's not how it works. You sign the check. You let him fill it in. That's what Christianity is all about. Peter, James, and John, hey, come and follow me. Come and follow me. You leave your nets and I'll make you fishers of men. What's that going to look like? Well, it's going to get your head chopped off. You're going to be crucified upside down. You're going to be strung out here and, and killed. You're going to be exiled to an island. You're going to die as a prisoner. I mean, you didn't even tell them all that because God doesn't often tell us how it's going to end. I want to be a musician of all things. And here I am preaching. I expected to have the weekends off, right? Uh, I've worked every weekend for the last 40 years of my life. The reality is I don't know what my future holds. I don't know if I'll be a pastor in two years. I don't know what's going to happen to my life, but I should be able to say this morning, I will do whatever God wants, I'll do it wherever God wants, and I'll do it anytime God wants. You need to join me in that commitment. You really do. You need to say that's what Christianity is. Why would I call him Lord if I'm not willing to do what he says? Matter of fact, that one point of that one message in this summer of this year could change everything about the future of your life, and it'll change it for good, because God will take you on a path and take you somewhere, not just individually, but in your family. It'll change the trajectory of your family. It will change the future of this church. There are a lot of things that I might want to do, a lot of particular schedules I might want to do them on, a lot of places I'd like to, I might want to, say, I want to be, I want to have a yacht ministry. That's what I want to have, a yacht ministry. I want to get a yacht, I want to sail around the world sample from the vineyards around the uh, Tuscany and I just going to that's my ministry that's what I'm going to do I'll sing worship songs along the way so it'll be very religious and sanctified now there may be somebody doing that for God but I I have very little confidence that you're going to have some kind of clear sermon from this platform that's going to convince you that the Bible is calling you in that direction but I knew I know this, God corporate, let me just speak corporately, He's going to call this church to do what it can to reach as many people in them their hills of the hill country and get this place so crowded and so uncomfortably crowded with so many services that all your leaders are so tired and you've built such a war chest from giving sacrificially that you're going to go and plant another church. That I know, I know that's within the will of God for Christians and churches, right? We are called to multiply. We're called to reach people for Christ. We're called, just read the book of Acts, to see the numbers of the church increase, increase, increase. People, they complain, by the way, because now it's really, it's really fun to sit in a corner and say we're gonna be a, a religious group because we don't care about numbers, right? It's funny how people say that. They say that sometimes about our church. You always care about numbers. And I say, you're darn right we care about numbers. We care about numbers because every number is a person, right? And that's what Jesus told us to care about. Jesus stood up on the Mount of Olives. He looked down at the city, and he said, look at that place. He weeped for the city. He looked across the valley of Sychar when he sat there by a well after talking about his role as the Messiah in the life of that Samaritan woman. And the apostles come back with you know, their Taco Bell or, or whatever they had there to eat. And he says, I got food to eat you know nothing about. He said, lift up your eyes and look across. Look at all these people that are coming with this woman I just shared with. All these people now want answers to life. They want answers about me. They want answers about who the Christ is, right? I've started this. I've started this, this reaping. Now you get and enter into the labor, and uh, this, is, this is the will of God for you. You've got to see people as part of the mission field. You have to have, to quote Matthew chapter 9, eyes for the harvest. Right? Lift up your eyes. Right? They're, they're, they're ready to go. I'm quoting John 4, I'm quoting Matthew chapter 9, the idea is that we should care about this church knowing that it's right in line with the will of God to see this church grow. Every person counts and we want to see this church be so healthy that it plants other churches, that it starts to affect this area, that it's not just a bunch of people getting together patting each other on the back about what they already believe. You've been to churches like that? Every single sermon is about something you learned 25 years ago many churches, it's about just saying, well, let's just talk to the non-Christians among us every week. And, and the ramp up of every sermon is, let's just, you know, would you just trust Christ for salvation today? Now, there's nothing wrong with us preaching the gospel. We need to preach the gospel. Right? But you ought to be convicted when you have the word of God opened by your pastors here to learn what it is to follow Christ. The Bible says it's like a mirror, right? James chapter one. And you look in the mirror and you see what's wrong with yourself. Do you think that kind of preaching stings? Or do you think you feel like you've got a nice little pat on the back, a nice hug from the bearded pastor, you know? Just it's so, feels so good, right? Your pastor loves you. That's why he tells you the truth. If you had a big old piece of donut hanging off the edge of your mouth and he goes, hey, 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 before you walk into church, get that mess off your mouth. You wouldn't say, oh, he hates me. No, you say he loves me, right? The word of God is a mirror. Did you look in the mirror this morning? I can probably start to guess who did and didn't. What did you do if you looked in the mirror this morning? Depending on how you look in the morning, if you look like me in the morning, there's some work to do every time you look in the mirror, right? i got to get presentable here. i got to comb my hair. i got to brush my teeth. i got to get the sleep out of my eyes. That is what the Word of God does. And every time you hear it, you will be challenged to say, am I prioritizing the way I should? Am I have the right connections that I should have in my workplace? Am I investing my my time that I have, where I'm free to choose what I do with my spare time? Am I investing in the right place? Am I making the priorities of my life the priorities that Christ wants me to have? And if you sit there with your arms crossed going, well, let's just hear about that a little bit before I decide. See, then you've missed the point of Abraham saying, I'll go, I don't know where I'm going. You right now need to say anything, any place, anytime. That's a good place to live. God takes people like that and takes them somewhere. Some of you are spinning like my dog, I had a dog when I was a kid, he didn't learn to do anything. But he chased his tail a lot. And, and I don't know much about dogs, I've kind of given up on on pets, I've got plenty of people I need to care for. Um, but we cut his tail off, they still do that to dogs? I don't know anything about it. I'm, I'm now I'm displaying my ignorance, a little stubby tail, because <laughs> we cut it off. I don't know why you cut tails off of dogs, but uh, we didn't do it ourselves, I'm sure we had someone do it for us. But His tail was so short, he couldn't ever catch his tail. And so he'd run around in circles in the yard. Sometimes our Christian life feels like that. Just run around in circles. Go to another Bible study. Go to another church service. Pray a few more prayers. Try and read the Bible again this year. And we're not doing anything. God doesn't take us anywhere. God wants to take your life into increasing fruitfulness. He'd like to do something with your life. It makes a difference in this world. You're called salt and light. You're supposed to make a difference. If the salt is not salty, he says, what good is it? You should be making a difference. God's gonna take people somewhere who say anything, any place, any time. And that, I guess, is an unpacking of this word, faith. Abraham trusted God. By faith, Abraham obeyed. By faith, verse nine, he went out to live in the land of promise, right? Here it comes, ready? As a VIP, as a superstar living in mansions in the nicest neighborhoods with gated communities with his kids and grandkids, he was a happy camper. Underline all of that there in verse nine. Do you see that there? What version is he preaching from? Nobody's catching that? You're looking at this, right? Keep me, keep me honest here if I'm not reading that properly. By faith he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents. Now I don't know what kind of digs he had in Ur of the Chaldeans, but I'll bet it wasn't a tent. I bet he was living in a place that had walls. I bet he had a nice roof over his head. Now he's living in tents. Right? But at least his kids and grandkids had a better life. Nope, he was living in tents with Isaac and Jacob. That's his son and his grandson. Hmm. Now they were heirs of the same promise. Follow me and it'll be good. I mean, that's a summary of the Christian life. Right? Follow me. It'll be better than you just following yourself and following the culture. Follow me. It'll be a good thing. It'll end well. Right? That's what evangelism is all about. This is going to end well. I mean, I want to end by having God say to me, His creature, even though I'm sinful. Hey, enter into the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. That's what I want God to say to me. I don't want to hear, "Depart from me, I never knew you." Into outer darkness, where there's weeping, wailing, and gnashing of teeth. I don't want to hear. That. I'd like it to end well for me, so I follow Christ because I know I'm a sinner. I need my sins, to my account, and I need to be forgiven by having my sins placed on the cross. I know it's going to end well, but here's the thing. I'm dealing with between now and the time I get there, and I know that, according to this passage, it could mean tents for me, right? And it may be that I bought into the cultural lie that my goal for my kids, or for my kids is to be prosperous and happy. And I know some of you say, I just want my kids to be happy, right? That's the wrong goal. I want my kids to be holy. I want my kids to say to God anything, any place, any time. I want my kids to follow Christ. That's what I want. And you know what I know? What often happens to people that follow Christ? They live in tents. Metaphorically, they live in tents. Sometimes physically and literally, they live in tents. They live in a place that is not as well off as they could have lived had they said, I'm going to follow my own impulses. Matter of fact, look at the way it's put in verse 13. These all died not having received the thing's promised. I thought it was going to end well. Well, in this life, it did not end well for them. I thought you are going to be blessed. Well, it didn't feel like I was blessed, at least not on the surface, because all I did was saw these promises and I greeted them from afar, having acknowledged that they were, not VIPs, but strangers and exiles on the earth. Strangers and exiles on the earth. (laughs) I mean, do you want to tell that to your kids? Hey, follow Christ you'll be a stranger and an exile in this planet. That's not how most of us think. Now, somehow we disconnect the teachings of the Bible for what I want for my life, my kids' lives, and my grandkids' lives. And all I'm saying is that's not biblical Christianity. Biblical Christianity is I want to follow Christ. And just like Peter, James, and John followed Christ, just like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob followed Christ, they did not have a fantastically wonderful VIP life here on earth. They're VIPs to us because we're reading the Bible and saying, look at these guys. They trusted God. They followed God. The whole 11th chapter of Hebrews is about the VIPs who were saying, I'll follow what God tells me to do. And we hail them as heroes, as examples. Problem is they they didn't have a great life here. As a matter of fact, a lot of things went wrong. Remember the promise started in Genesis chapter 12. It's called the Abrahamic covenant. I'm going to bless you. Matter of fact, I'll bless people that bless you. People that curse you, I'm going to oppose those people. I'm going to make your nation and your, your descendants as numerous as the sand on the seashore. I mean, that's what we read there in verses 11 and 12. You're going to have a great nation come out of your lineage. They didn't get to see any of that. They were foreigners, exiles. And it becomes the template of the Christian life. Follow Christ. He's the king. If I follow Christ and he's the king, man, I'm going to be like a prince. Right? You'll be a princess. We'll be co-regents with Christ. It'll be great. We'll be at the top. Yeah, that's the promise, but it doesn't happen now. Here's how Paul put it when he went back in his second round of trying to help the Christians on his first missionary journey that he had won to Christ. He went to one place, he turned around, started coming back, and then he said this Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. In other words, if it's going to be hard for you, you just need to know you're on the right road. My mother in law owns some property up in the San Bernardino Mountains and She had a little piece of property that was hard to get to, and she gave us instructions the first time I went there, and, you know, you go down the interstate, and you get off, and you go up this highway, and you turn off on this side road, then you go through this little road, then it turns into a dirt road, and then it turns into a narrow road, and there'll be branches in the way. You might have to get out and move some things, and then you make some switchbacks, and you finally get up, and you'll see a clearing, and then that's where the cabin is. So as I got to the end of trying to get there, and I'm making the switchbacks and getting out of my car and clearing stuff out of the roads, I'm not like, oh, man, this is horrible. I just want to turn around and go home. It's like, no, 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 no. This is what I was told. This is how it's going to be. I know that I'm getting close, and I know when I get there, it'll be great. But the way I just, here's the forecast, it's going to get hard. Did Jesus say it's going to get easier for Christians the closer we get to his return or harder for Christians the closer we get to his return? Ah, here's the forecast. Let me quote it for you. Things are going to go from bad to worse. It was respectable at one point to be a God-fearing person who followed the Lord. Matter of fact, that might get you a little bit more trust in the marketplace. People might want to buy insurance from you because you're a good, upstanding, church-going person. You believe in Christ. Now you're a narrow-minded, fundamentalist, Bible-thumping jerk, right? And it's only going to get worse. There are things like this. You write a check to the church, get a tax write-off. If you itemize and say, that's great, that's going to end. cost of doing business for church is going to go up. If we can even rent property at some point. And that's not just going to happen in California, that's going to happen everywhere. The Bible's going to go from bad to worse. People are going to be lovers of themselves, not lovers of God. They're going to oppose. Matter of fact, here's how John put it We're going to go from people that are pro Christ to the spirit of Antichrist. And many Antichrists, though they're out there now, it's going to ramp up till ultimately the whole world system is going to be Antichrist. I mean, that's the forecast. So if it gets harder, we just know this we're right on track. If the forecast comes and they say there's going to be a storm, God gives us those very gloomy forecasts not to scare us, right? He gives us a forecast to prepare us. That's the point. And the point is that you're steeled in your resolve that I'm going to follow Christ even if it gets hard. I put it this way, number two, you need to patiently bear the difficulties. Between now and the time that we do enter the kingdom, it's going to be rough. Here's how Jesus put it. To us in this world you will have tribulation John 16 33 in this world you'll have tribulation Paul put it this way in first Timothy 4 12 he said all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted you want a Christian life where you are not going to be persecuted you want a Christian life where you're not going to be opposed you want a Christian life where you can be the VIP every month at work and live faithfully according to Christ's dictates can't it's going to get worse I'm not saying they're not seasons. I'm not saying they're not days. I'm not saying they're not things that you do and you follow Christ and things work out in the marketplace. Or people in your neighborhood think you're a hero. That may happen, but the forecast is that's going to get rarer and rarer and rarer because to follow Christ is going to get difficult. They're going to call you all kinds of names. They're going to exclude you. They're going to revile you. They're going to insult you. And that's okay because when the road gets narrow, I know I'm on the right path. When it gets steep, I know we're on the right, the right path. When I have to move things out of the way, and there's branches. I, you're on the right path. That's exactly what my mother-in-law said would happen. And Jesus says to you, "You can bear with all this. You can live in tents. You can be someone who's considered an exile and a stranger on the earth. It's okay. It's okay. You can handle that." Let me turn you to a passage. First Peter. I think that might be helpful. I haven't turned you anywhere outside of Hebrews 11. So let me turn you to First Peter chapter four. First Peter chapter four. All I can tell you is you've heard a kind of Christianity, I'm quite sure. I don't mean that you've been in a church like this. You may have. But I know you've heard Christianity like this. That means that that when you encounter difficulties, you're going to go, wow, something must be wrong with my faith. There must be something wrong with my Christianity. There must be something wrong with my life. Look at verse 12 of 1 Peter 4. He says, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. Do not be surprised. There are a lot of people that are surprised when things go bad for them because they're trying to faithfully follow Christ. I'm doing what the Bible says. I'm doing the work, right? I'm, I'm following Christ. I stood up for what was right and bad stuff's happening. Why? Why me? Why me? Why me? Why me? I wrote a book called uh, Lifelines for Tough Times. It the story of us having a, uh, a handicapped child, my third child. And... Um, I wrote it really because people were always saying when bad times hit, why me, right? Why me? This is not right. This is not the way it should be. I'm a Christian. Things should go well for us. You I mean we've got a, a, at first we had a terminal diagnosis of our prenatal third child. I mean, that's not right. right, and I remember people coming to me like, oh man, it's not right. I just know that God's going to heal this child. I had no promise of God's healing. Matter of fact, here's the promise I have in Scripture, Genesis chapter 3, I'm made of dirt." Everything in the dirt is cursed, including my body, including my offspring. Everything's going to get sick and diseased and die. That's the promise. So the forecast for me and my children, regardless of how they turn out from, from day one, I just know this, the forecast isn't good. Because in this life, I just know this, everything that I want has to be deferred to another time because in this life, things are going to go wrong. And if they don't go wrong at the beginning, and in our case with our third, to be physically wrong in a massive way, prenatally, I just know this, a million other things are going to go wrong. Speaking of writing, my my wife just had a book published, at least a chapter. She was a contributor to it, where, again, she was writing on the issue. It's called Choose Life. Uh, Moody Publishers just put it out. And there's a section in that chapter that my wife writes about the fact that even if you looked at a perfectly healthy child... And you began to forecast in your mind. Think of all the things that are going to go wrong. right? And all these people are saying, well, you ought to abort. As many of us told us, abort your daughter, abort your daughter. That's the most gracious thing you can do is to keep her from all this pain and all the heartache that will come from her life. And there's this great section in that chapter that she wrote about think of all the terrible things that are going to happen to every single life. right? Everything that's going to go wrong, including at some point with a healthy child at whatever age, they're going to die. They're going to get disease, they're going to get cancer, they're going to have heartbreak, they're going to have all kinds of issues that are going to be pain and suffering, because that is the lot in this life. And when I'm sitting here as a Christian going, now I've, I've settled the problem of sin, and now all of a sudden things get hard because I'm following Christ, they're like, why are you surprised? Don't be surprised. It's come upon you to test this very thing that Abraham had so much of not as though some strange thing, bottom of verse 12, were happening to you. Verse 13, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. Now, that's how it was for Christ, was it not? People die in the middle of their life. Think about Jesus, right? He wasn't 90 when he died, was he? He wasn't surrounded by family, was he? I mean, think about it. His friends scattered. He died early in life. He was opposed by everyone that He really should have been hailed by. But he suffered, and I'm going to share in that suffering, just by being a follower of that Christ, that you may rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Hmm. Okay, so there's something about living in tents now and mansions later, about being reviled now and being affirmed later, and going through deprivation now and being fulfilled later. Verse 14, if you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. That's hard. That's kind of esoteric. That's kind of poetic. My wife and I were driving to church this morning. We turned on some, you know, religious radio station, Christian radio station, and they, it, was, it was old time hour. It was, it was radio for 80 plus. And uh, they played this old hymn, and it was about some weird line about him being in the embrace of Jesus or, you know, was the Jesus, in, I don't know, it was weird. Trippy. And we knew the old hymn, right? Because we, we're familiar with the old style stuff. And we both looked at each other and laughed and said something like, oh, it's weird, right? Christian life kind of described it being, you know, in the embrace of Jesus. And yet this passage, right? I mean, there is that sense in which as hard as it is to explain, here's this, uh, this spirit of glory and of Christ. It's just resting on you when you happen to live in tents, when if you didn't follow Christ, you would live in a much better place. When you're an exile and a stranger and excluded or insulted, whereas if you didn't follow Christ and you didn't do what He says, things would go better for you. You're sharing in the sufferings of Christ. There's camaraderie there, and the spirit of glory and of God, it just rests upon you. Now, it's not an excuse to be a bad guy at work, Verse 15, let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a meddler. Yet, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glory, right, and glorify God in that name. I don't know how many of you are suffering because you're a Christian because some of you, your neighbors don't even know you are a Christian. Not the kind of Christian that you are, faithful and committed to following Christ, knowing that there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved, the kind of Christian that thinks there's only one way and that the sincere Buddhist and the sincere Hindu is really lost, the sincere Muslim is lost, that there's no other name, that Christ in Romans chapter, or John chapter 14 says, I'm the way, I'm the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father. Not that kind of narrow-minded, fundamentalist, Bible-thumping Christian. You're not that kind, are you? And they don't even know that you're a Christian. And it work, Maybe you're not encountering all that because they don't even know that. But if you suffer as a Christian, if they know you're a Christian, if there's a salt and a light that comes in their eyes, these people that want darkness because you're a Christian, well, then don't be ashamed. you got to glorify God in that name. First time for judgment to begin with the household of God, and if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Oh, yeah, we're suffering now, but I'd much rather suffer with Christ than to suffer when Christ now in His judgment comes upon the world. And if the righteous are scarcely saved, what will become the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Do you think Abraham and Isaac and his grandson Jacob, living in tents, exiles, foreigners, they didn't feel at home, they left their home. They're out of place. They're outcasts. Do you think they were blessed? Yeah. But what did they have to do? They had to entrust their souls. They had to trust God. They had to have faith. They needed this ambitious willingness to say, okay, I can bear with these difficulties patiently, without complaining. You all know the 23rd Psalm, right? Lord is my shepherd, shall not want. A lot of great images there, right? Still waters, green pastures. Some of us envision the Christian life like that, and we can all say there are times when it feels that way, and praise God for those times. But really, it's ramping up into this. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, and it's not just death, that's like one day of your life, but it's walking through those valleys of the shadow of death. It's when you feel like you want to die, when you feel like Elijah or Moses or, or Job, like I just, I just, I curse the day of my, my birth. Here's Job doing all the right things and suffering. Here's Elijah doing all the right things and saying, Jezebel's coming after me. I hate this life, right? It's those days. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, of fear no evil, talk about the spirit of glory and of God resting, for you're with me. It's okay. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You know that line, right? The rod and the staff. The rod is the short stick. The staff is the long stick. I'm walking with the shepherd. Those are tools of defense, sometimes tools of discipline upon the sheep. Then it says, uh, He prepares a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You ever pondered that, that thought? I mean, He's going to supply and give sustenance to me. He's going to give me what I need. Here's the the line that doesn't work in the presence of my enemies. (laughs) Well, wait a minute. You're the shepherd. You got the power. You got the tools. You got the rod. You got the staff. Here's what I'm praying get rid of my enemies. No, 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 no. I'm going to give you what you need in the midst of your enemies. We're living the Christian life in a hostile environment. It's only going to get more hostile. There's going to be more wolves surrounding the pack. The flock's going to be small. The flock's going to be embattled. The flock's going to be really persecuted. And we've got to say, God's going to supply. God will sustain. And you know where this goes. This has a lot of motion to it in the 23rd Psalm. It says, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. Remember that line? Surely goodness and mercy will follow me. If I say there's a guy, I was coming to church and there was a guy following me, right? That doesn't mean he's with me. He's behind me. But that's really not the strength of the Hebrew word radoff. Radoff translates into this text in in English to follow. Matter of fact, if you look that word up and the usage of that word throughout the Old Testament, it was the word that was used of David when he was a fugitive and Saul was radoffing him. Saul was chasing him. The king was trying to kill him. Here's another way to translate it, right? Surely goodness and mercy is chasing me all the days of my life. The good news is the good of what God is going to do is following me. It's chasing me. It's going to catch up with me. And when does it? You know how the psalm ends? And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That's a future. I will dwell in the house. I'm not there yet. I'm getting there. I'm going there. And I got God's good that He's promised to me, and I know it's going to catch me. It's going to overtake me. And that's the thing. The way I can, as a Christian... I can patiently bear the difficulties as if I keep looking forward. And that's where our passage goes. Go back to Hebrews 11. Look at verse 10. For he was looking forward, Abraham was, to the city that has foundations. What's the implication there? That means this city he lived in, right, the area, the region he lived in of Canaan, it really had no foundations. And it really doesn't. Matter of fact, you may say, well, it's still there today. Yeah, the West Bank of Israel is still there, right? Canaan is still there. Uh, they got some interstates running through it. There's checkpoints. There's a lot of fighting and skirmishing. There's a lot of politics going on in the Middle East. But one day, I know this, according to Second Peter chapter 3, it will be, uh, it'll be toasted, right? It'll be burnt up. Talk about global warming. Here's the future of the world, right? It's all going to melt with a fervent heat, the Bible says. But the hope is, in the passage, if you know 2 Peter chapter 3 that I'm quoting, but we look forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. There's a permanent place. There's a replacement world coming. There's a replacement. There's a city with a foundation. And here's the point. Abraham is looking forward to that city, that it has foundations. It's not going anywhere. Whose designer and builder, right, is the planning department of New Braunfels. See that there? No, no, no. The designer and builder is not a city planner. Designer and builder is not an architect, not a general contractor. The designer and builder of the place that we're going to live in forever is God. Jesus said, speaking of John 14, if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again, and receive it on myself, that where I am, you may be also. I'm preparing a place, a kingdom. It's going to come down out of heaven, by the way, like a bride adorned for her husband. If I started talking to you about the bride, if I said, in the analogy of the New Testament, who is the bride? You'd go, oh, oh, I know, me. No, no, no. It is you in other passages, right? That's true. You can read the book of Ephesians, and the church is the bride of Christ. But you know who the bride is at the end of the book of Revelation? It's your new home. Who's the groom? You. You're the groom, not Christ. You're the groom. You stand there at the end of that aisle, and here comes your new home. It's a city. It's a place that God has built. It's called the New Jerusalem, and it's coming down out of heaven like a bride adorned for her husband. Pastor Hayden, Pastor Evan know this experience. We do premarital counseling. I've done plenty of it in my ministry. And you meet with the couple and all of that. And then you get, finally, you go through the rehearsal, and then you get to the wedding day. And they throw open those back doors. And everybody stands up. And the music plays. And here comes this gal. And you look at the groom that's standing next to you. This is a good thing about being the pastor. You get the best view in the whole house. And as the girl starts coming down the aisle, you go, is is that the same girl from premarital I don't even recognize that girl man she's pretty I didn't see all that before and then he's sitting there crying right so here she comes so beautiful and he stands there at the end of the aisle and here she goes, right not, I, not any ugly brides not that I've officiated at least so pretty adorned, dressed up. And he stands there, and here comes his bride. The Bible says God's prepared a city for you. Its foundations, right, are there because God is an eternal God. He's prepared a place, and here comes the place that you're going to live in. The Bible says you need to look forward to that. Right? Just like a guy who's going to get married looks forward to that. People that speak thus, look down to Verse 14 who know they're strangers and aliens now and here, they make it clear they're seeking a homeland. I can't wait for that. If they'd been thinking of the land from which they had gone out, they would have an opportunity to return. If you want to go back to Ur, southern Iraq, you can go. You have plenty of opportunity. If you want to live for this life, you can live for this life. Want a bigger house, bigger life, want a better job. You can deny Christ and get all of the stuff. You can get everything here. And matter of fact, you can amass a lot by compromising and not living for Christ. But really... It's only phony Christians that do that, who are Christian in name only. And Jesus said, what would it really profit a man if he gains the whole world but forfeits his soul? What a waste that would be. And there are a lot of people, by the way, who think they went to church, walked an aisle, prayed a prayer, raised a hand, filled out a form, that think they're Christians. And then they say, well, yeah, I'm going to call him Lord, Lord, but I'm not going to do what he says. I really haven't signed the blank check. I'm not living for him. And they're going to hear this one day, Matthew 6, they're going to hear, hey, Depart from me. I never knew you. But first they're going to say, Lord, Lord, wait a minute. Wait, 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 wait. wait. We did all the stuff. No, no, you didn't. Depart from me. I never knew you. You who practice lawlessness. We don't like that because we know we're evangelical in the Reformed tradition. We believe in grace, saved by grace. It is not about works. You're right. It's not about works. We are saved by grace. But if you're saved and the Spirit of God dwells in you, I know that this sermon Especially that first point of you saying anything, any place, anytime is what the Spirit of God is going, yeah, that's what you need. That's what you should do. That's what you need. Real Christians long to do that, and they know it's not about this life, it's about the next life, and it's coming. And when it comes, it's going to be like a groom seeing his bride coming down the aisle going, This is what I signed up for. Not this world. Everything here is going away. You're going to leave it all behind. why we're supposed to store up treasure in heaven. And when you think that way and think it's about the next life, if I lose another night out of the week because I'm serving the Lord, if I lose a little bit of my money, a segment of my money because I'm investing in God's work, if I'm there sharing the gospel and I lose a promotion because they know I'm a Jesus freak, if I lose some invites to to the block party in my neighborhood because I'm standing up for Christ and trying to lead people to repentance, then here's the thing. God says, not ashamed to be called your God. Verse 16, but as it is, they desire a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared a city for them. This is the truth. This is real. The famous Oxford professor who got right with God, overwhelmed by God's grace and the cogency of it all, said it well, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world, right? What you long for and what I long for cannot be satisfied by the things that we could amass in this world. We need eternal things. We need truly joyful, pure things, things that bring us pleasure and satisfaction in a way that the world cannot offer. Lewis goes on to say, I must keep alive in myself this desire for my true country which I shall not find until after death. I must never let it get snowed under or turned aside. I must make it the main object of life to press on to that other country and to help others do the same. And that's the whole point of this church plant. We invested frankly hundreds of thousands of dollars to see this church planted in Texas and we're going to plant another one in North Dallas. After we evangelize Texas we'll move on to another state. But We're going to keep planting churches, and the next one's in North Dallas next summer. And we're investing all that money and paying it forward, not so that we can have anything in return other than the fact that we're seeing people reach repentance and faith, joining the family. And as C.S. Lewis put it, we're helping others to make the main objective of their life to press on to that other country. We're trying to grab as many people as we can. And as we seek to invest in that, the Bible says God is not ashamed to be called our God. Let me quote for you a passage. Some of you may know if you've been around the block a few times in the Christian life. Let this soak in as I close. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again into a living hope. Something in the future, something I know confidently. Why? Because it's rooted in history. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, And has given us a hope to an inheritance that is imperishable. It's undefiled and it's unfading and it's kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation, not now, ready to be revealed in the last time. Oh, I'm saved now only because I got my ticket to the coming kingdom. In this you rejoice. Even if though now, for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. Welcome to the club. The road is narrow, guys. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, even though gold perishes, ultimately, even though it's tested by fire, our faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you've not seen Him, you love Him. Though you don't see Him now, you believe in Him and you rejoice with joy that's inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Preaching like you're going to hear, I trust, for years in this church is not doom and gloom, but it's not hooked on the glitz and glamour of this world, because we know this world and all of its desires, to quote 1 John 2, is passing away but we're working for something eternal. And we're willing to invest material things in eternal truths. We're willing to see people brought to a realization that it's not about this world, it's about the next world. Throwing a few Jesus verses on your temporal desires, right, is not biblical Christianity. It's about desiring a better country, a heavenly one. And I commend you to that pursuit. Let's pray. God, give us more. Of that kind of passion for things that last, things that endure, no matter how good it might be here on earth. They're just foretastes of the eternal, and we look forward to the day when we can not just enter into the kingdom ourselves, but look over our shoulder and see a long line of people that through the evangelism that you've so graciously blessed have been included in the queue and the line to walk through the gates and to hear enter into the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. You blessed of my Father. God, I pray that for more and more people in this place. And may, as I've said and prayed many times, may this church get so uncomfortably filled and a war chest so filled to the top that it's able to invest in seeing other churches planted that are serious about preaching, about a message that will only be realized on the other side. We look forward to that as you told us and taught us to, to store up treasure in heaven where moth can't eat it up and rust can't corrode it and thieves can't come in and steal it. God, we'd like to be wealthy, spiritually wealthy, a kind of wealth that will exchange all of this temporal wealth for something eternal. Who's going to ever entrust us with real riches, the Bible says, if we don't utilize and parlay these earthly riches into things that matter? As you said, making friends by means of mammon that we can enter into the kingdom and welcome those people, those evangelistic converts into the eternal dwellings that we're all going to live in. God, we know there's a lot at stake. It's about definitions. It's about what you say in your word. It's about being clear and thinking rightly about your truth. And I pray you would help us to do that as we open up your word, as we lean forward week after week, as we hear the pastors here and the leaders here teach the word that we could see wonderful things in your law, that we could understand you better, that we can dive deeper into understanding what's important and to be prioritized in our daily lives. Help us to stand up strong in a deteriorating culture and in an increasingly hostile culture. Let us not be dismayed. Let us not run around and say the sky is falling. Let us know that the storm was forecast, that you told us it was coming. And we're going to double down. We're going to be resolved. And we're going to continue to say to you anything you want us to do. Any place you'd like us to do it, and any time you call us to do it, we're, we're there. God, let us spend and be expended for the souls of the people that you call us to minister to and to seek and to save, just as Christ came to seek and save the lost. Do that through this church, please. Not just to pat ourselves on the back every time we get together at church, to affirm what we already know and believe, but to go deeper and see wonderful things in your word. God, do that through this church and multiply these people, I pray, as they care about the people in their neighborhoods and their workplaces. In Jesus' name, amen.